Welcome to the Cab Appropriate Podcast. I'm your host, Cliff Harvey. This song don't give a damn if the rhymes don't fit with the DJ quit. This song don't give a damn you can't sing or dance to it, can't romance to it. This song ain't arrogant if you don't try and buy it. Or if your radio denies it, don't care about what, who got, what's cool on TV, or what spots hot, I forgot. I ain't mad at evolution. Hi team and welcome back to the Carb Appropriate Podcast where I talk to inspiring people in health, fitness, nutrition, business and the creative arts who are doing interesting things to improve performance and maximize human potential. And today I am super excited to be talking to Dr. Lara Bryden, the period revolutionary, a naturopathic physician, renowned expert on women's and hormonal health and also one of our featured speakers at HPN 2018 this year. Welcome Lara. Thank you. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. Hey, so we haven't actually met in person, so this is exciting to be talking. Uh, we have, well, I, I obviously learned uh, initially about you from my team. Um, I was have a very great team over here, and um, they had spoken extremely highly of you and your work. And so I had looked a little bit into what you do, and we had talked about getting you down here for or you know up here wherever up, you have yeah. at the time you're, up, you're you're north from where i am yeah. I, I know you changed location a little yeah. bit uh we talked about getting you here for the hpn conference even a couple of years ago and so um super excited to have you here this year and um i, I just wanted to thank you for the great work that you're doing as well i've been thinking about this a lot with you know the world situation as it is at the moment and a lot of the things that are going on um you know it's an interesting industry we're in because especially in nutrition where i'm you know pretty firmly couched um and have been for most of my career it, it's dominated by women in terms of numbers but it's still very patriarchal i think and a lot of the loudest voices and a lot of the um you know ideas and concepts that we have are, are very much couched in a male perspective and so i think it's really important the work you're doing and I think it's really important for people like myself to be able to talk with you and, and get a better understanding of what's really going on. Because I think often we just sort of become very set in our ways, I should say. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to flip the script and present, it's a thought experiment, present the idea that a woman, a woman is the standard normal version of a human being. And once we start to see it through that lens, that, are, you know, female physiology, women's hormones, women's periods are not a side issue, but a central part of human physiology. It changes the whole dynamic, changes the whole conversation. Absolutely. And, and I guess that's something that happens, um, is beginning to happen a little bit more frequently now, is, is there is a lot more research going on into that area. But I guess traditionally, a lot of the populations that were studied were college-age college age males. I mean, so much of our yeah. research is, is based on that. Absolutely. It, I mean, this isn't not this is not just in within nutrition. This is all of medicine. Women have basically been left out of the conversation, yeah. left out of 
a lot of the thinking. And so a lot of, I think, what's being presented out there nutritionally is what works for men being presented as this can work for everybody. And that's what I'm trying to change. Yeah, and I and we've had a few little Twitter discussions, which I'm yeah. going to get into in just a little bit as well. Yeah. And I guess yeah. even within that, you know, my perspective is going to be as a male uh, working with uh, not not just males, working with males and females, but yeah. probably, you know, you made a really good point that sometimes we don't ask the right questions. And, yeah. you know, that sort of tempers what we're seeing as well, because we haven't necessarily got the right data to work from. But I want to take a quick backtrack because sure. a, a lot of the people that are going to listen to this podcast going forward are probably big fans of you and your work anyway. So they're going to know a little bit about what you do. Sure. Um, but for those that don't, how did you get started in, in health overall? And more importantly, how did you come to be doing what you're doing now as the period revolutionary? And I hope I don't use that term flippantly. Oh, no. No, I, I'm happy to have that term out there. Actually, you know what, Cliff? I started as a scientist. So I was studying evolutionary biology back in the 80s, and I actually published a paper in a peer-reviewed journal on the sex differences of foraging behavior of a particular huh. species of bat. So it's actually harking back to that now, thinking back to my days as a biologist, putting it through those that lens. Yeah, you know, from an evolutionary perspective, we have males and females have different criteria. So of course, that was 23. 25 years ago. And mm. that it, it's only now that I'm kind of drawing on some of that. But after that, I went on to retrain as a naturopathic doctor at the college in Toronto. I started out in general practice in ranch country, south of Calgary, just small town, Alberta, very different sort of thing. And I just worked with yeah. everyone back in the days when, you know, probiotics were a weird idea. You know, it's fun to have been practicing during that whole arc of change back to, you know, the 90s when things were very different. And then, <laughs> then when I moved to Sydney in the early 2000s, I just started working mainly with women. And so it's been the last, you know, 15 years that I've done an essentially deep dive into what works for common period problems, perimenopause, things like that. And I just feel like that gave me the opportunity to learn a lot about women and women's bodies and what works. It's been great. And so for, from an overview sort of perspective, what would you say people, and I'm talking here also about practitioners, what do you think yeah. they're mainly missing with respect to health overall, but more particularly women's health? That women need to ovulate to be healthy. Mm. That's my talk at your your event coming up is based, I think I called it, if you're not thinking about ovulation, you're not thinking about health. There yeah. are a number of obstacles to ovulation. And my experience is most doctors, most PTs, most everyone is not thinking about that. You know, is not, they might have some vague sense of, you know, is she menstruating, but that's very different than is she ovulating because of reasons we can go into. Mm. So where do you think that disconnect is? Because, I, I mean, I guess a lot of us, even relatively well-educated and, you know, doing a good job for our clients, would be asking the general questions about menstrual cycles and things. But yeah. where is that not going deep enough from your point of view? Well, I kind of lay the blame at, honestly, I mean, we have to, I have to say, I kind of lay the blame at the, that hormonal birth control because when, because of that, because of the way we've put down women's hormones for 60 years, the physiology associated with ovulation, the benefits we get from progesterone that we make from ovulation has just not been on the radar. It's just not seen as something valuable, which is 
kind of crazy because if you make the analogy to testosterone for men, mm. this would be like for the last 60 years, us saying, look, men, you really don't need testosterone until you're ready for a baby. So we're going to give you this drug to turn it off. And don't worry because everybody else is doing it, even though, you know, it affects your mood and your libido and weight metabolism. You know, that's just what you've got to do to be a man. <laughs> it's, that's kind of the crazy thing we say to women. So I, I think that's part of the problem. I think it's that. I think it's just myopic view, like kind of tunnel vision, not not sort of seeing not thinking about women's physiology as part of the whole picture. It's a, it's a fascinating discussion because, you know, I've been, I watched an interesting documentary just a week or so ago and it was about the sort of sexual revolution in the sixties and how the contraceptive pill was, was really quite a critical part of um, the, the social movement. Yes. But when we look at the, the physiology, it, it's a pretty interesting situation that, it's really the only drug that comes to mind that I can think of at least that is not designed to treat a pathology. Yeah. You know, and it's, it's so common and people just don't even think about it. There's no pathology it's treating. It's actually probably in some instance worsening some people's pathologies. It's, every, it's in every instance. It's, it's castrating women. I mean, not to overstate it, but that's what it does. It shuts down the ovarian ovarian function. It's going straight in the show notes, you know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, whereas it would be like shutting down testicular function. I mean, that sounds crazy. It'd be like shutting down testicular function, then yeah. giving back a substandard version of testosterone that's not as good and has other side effects. That's, that's what we're doing. And yes, okay, in terms of, yes, I think it was important for women, but it was a, the way I see it, you know, it's a stepping stone. That was 60 years ago, six zero years ago. This is 2018. Like we yeah. surely can come up with something better. And I really, I sort of, I have a couple of thoughts. I think if it proposed today for the first time, most scientists, doctors would just be appalled that that's what we were proposing to do. And also I'm pretty convinced that future generations will look back and think, what was that about? You know, why did we feel like that was the only way we could not only prevent pregnancy, but somehow the idea that it manages women's health i mean it suppresses symptoms but at a big cost women are paying a cost i'm obviously very passionate about this i feel i mean i'm, I'm drawing on my work from 25 years with patients 20 years with patients and just seeing in real life stories what this means for women on my instagram feed i have a little series of what i call coming off the pill stories There'll be things like that. I, these are actually literally jot down in my consults with patients, write down in their own words what they say. One, the one that knocked, like started it all off for me was a young woman who said when she stopped the pill after, you know, 15 years, it was like a curse was lifted. Wow. Yeah. That's what women experience in the shift in their mood, their energy. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, obviously, I, I haven't got the same experience there that, that you have, but it was interesting in my early days of practice, the the drug cascade side of things, and it was particularly with um, with skin health. Yeah. You know, someone suffering poor skin health, and so they're either told to go on the pill or on pretty high-dose antibiotics. And then in some instances, there were, um, you know, there these poor people who were basically then starting to take more and more medication to treat the effects of the medications they were taking for something that in the base instance was actually fairly innocuous. Now, I'm certainly not understating the importance of, you know, skin health and particularly, um, you know, skin health 
socially because it's, yeah. it can be such a stigmatizing thing. But what was super interesting was getting those people off the meds and looking at a proper plan of sort of holistic intervention at the baseline cleared up the skin issues without the drug cascade. And that was really eye-opening for me as a young practitioner back in the sort of, I guess, similar sort of time, late 90s kind of thing. Exactly. There's a cascade that happens with the pill. That's actually the first. I do. I have little patient stories in my book, and that's one of the first ones. Is she really common? Start the pill when you're 15, your skin, 14, 15. Within 12 months, depression, and on an antidepressant. And wow. then had that, that's all happening at 15. And of course, at that age, you don't have enough wherewithal to really think. Wait, was that first steroid drug that I took maybe? affecting my mood and then you know a year later you're on the, on antidepressants and that's just how you stay for 10 years yeah. and i mean we know the link with depression is real that there was a study out of denmark in end of 2016 that tracked 1.1 million women and found a conclusive link between all types of hormonal birth control and increased incidence of depression and anxiety diagnoses and the scientists, the researchers said that's an, that's an underestimation because those are just women who were diagnosed and given antidepressants. That doesn't even include all the women who just quietly said, no way, you know, I'm not taking this. Yeah. Wow. That, that's fascinating. Yeah. And again, you know, it's something um, I was expecting to be, you know, some, somewhat wowed by some of the things you said, but um, the, the, the interesting thing, this is so simple, right? This seems yeah. to be such simple stuff. And yet because it's so formulaic and it's so foundational in women's healthcare that they're provided with these medications that we, we just forget about those effects. You know what? You just said the word simple is my mission statement. I did an interview last week and she's like, well, I guess we have to acknowledge that women's health is quite complicated. And I was like, no, nope. <laughs> no, it's not. Women's health, This I wanted to spell that I, that myth because that's, that's the narrative we've been told is that women's health is in the too hard basket. It's mysterious. It's complicated. It's in the domain of gynecologists. It's like, no, <laughs> you know, periods are an extension of our general health. They are both an indicator and a creator of our general health. They are not that complicated. And the reviews of, I love on Amazon of my book are things like, why did no one ever explain this before? You know, it's really... <laughs> It's not that complicated. What you eat, you know, what you do affects your periods. It's, it makes sense, right? Yeah, I, I was laughing when you mentioned that because this is going back a long time now. This is probably yeah. about the year 2000, I'd say. Yeah. I had a, a brief moment of notoriety uh, here in New Zealand as the, the menopause guy, and it's not something I tried to do. Yeah. I, I didn't, you know, want that moniker at yeah. all. But what happened was I had I was seeing a number of clients who were really struggling with perimenopausal issues. Yep. Now, typically, and since then, I would typically send them on to one of my colleagues, one of my female colleagues yep. who specialises in that because it's not within my wheelhouse. But at the time, there wasn't really anyone that I trusted to to do a good job because it was in the the depths of the very um, high carb, extremely low fat mania. And I thought that was one of the issues there. Yep. And so I wasn't, and I still am not a women's health expert, but what I did was basically just provided a very basic lifestyle plan that included eating natural unprocessed food. And it certainly wasn't carb restricted. It was natural unprocessed food first and foremost, and it included sufficient amounts of fat. Yeah. 
it was almost that simple. And, and protein, probably, upping their protein, yep. Absolutely, yeah. So yeah. good levels of protein, lots of vegetables, healthy fats, and then ad libitum on top of that, whatever yeah. healthy carbs they could eat, basically on top of that foundation, which is typically sort of my carb-appropriate yeah. approach. And these people got just phenomenal results. And so they started telling all their friends. And so I had all these perimenopausal women coming in to see me. Yeah. And at the time, I was a young, you know, guy competing yeah. in – weightlifting for New Zealand with a big mohawk and all this kind of stuff. The the opposite. But the thing that rang true what we were saying there, it was it was simple stuff. Yeah. It wasn't complex. It was basically providing the building blocks and people got results. Yeah. I, I could totally imagine that actually because perimenopause some of those symptoms do respond really well. Just get get the alcohol out, get some pro get the protein up in the morning. You know, it's yeah, the body responds. It's not not complicated. So what's What's the sort of, what are some of the steps that you go through then if someone, you know, is really committed as a lot of people are, or, or not just committed, but very scared about going off the contraceptive pill? I mean, how do you approach that from a practitioner's point of view? Well, first step is to decide why they're on it. You know, are they, is it, do they need something reliable, alternative contraception? So we look at that. Are they worried about their skin? That's, that's probably the most common one, in which case I have a how to prevent and treat post-pill acne kind of protocol. I usually get them started about a month before. It's like, it's, you know, zinc, cut the dairy, cut the sugar for a month before and in the context of a healthy diet. And usually they're happily surprised. I mean, these might be women who previously tried to stop the pill and then found out they got the horrible post-pill acne, which I'll just say for your listeners, starts at about three to six months off the pill. It doesn't start straight away. This will be, they come off, they think, oh, maybe I'm okay. And then boom, <laughs> you know, three months in, they get this explosion of breakouts and that is very distressing. And that's about when at the six month mark, they go back on and they might've been just about to turn the corner and get better anyway. That's an example of a post-pill situation. Um, but there's other situations, you know, they might be worried they're not gonna get their period, which then has a different, a different flow chart I go through to work out why they maybe weren't getting their period last time they stopped the pill. Then there's endometriosis, which I'll just mention briefly because it always gets brought up, you know, as soon as I bring up the idea of stopping hormonal birth control, people say, well, I, I need it for my endometriosis, which is a painful condition. Yeah. That's in a way that's a whole other podcast on its own. Endometriosis is a very serious condition and I think natural treatments can help, but sometimes hormonal birth control is required for symptom suppression and that's fine. But nine out of 10 women don't have endometriosis. So for all the other women who don't have that, inflammatory disease, you know, I would say pretty confidently that most of them can have reached the place of having natural cycles that just arrive with no PMS or pain or fanfare or really just, yeah, just a regular normal period. That's our, that's what the body can do in yeah. most cases. Yeah. And I, I Again, this is just from from my experience, but I've found that in the presence of those, you know, endometriosis is a very inflammatory condition in the presence yep. of those types of conditions. Often people aren't, because they haven't been advised to, they're not taking care of the foundational stuff underneath the medications, you know. Yep. Um, so they haven't really looked extensively at diet because obviously doctors aren't trained to to prescribe that they haven't looked at holistic um you know lifestyle interventions and things and so often when you take care of that underlying stuff even if the need for a medication isn't completely abated it's kind of reduced a lot wouldn't you say 
Yeah, actually, because you're a sciencey guy, scientist, <laughs> I will share with you a little scientific insight into endometriosis, potentially, out of, out of interest. I actually just had a meeting with a scientist from the UNSW Microbiome Institute. She was contacting me because of some of the stuff I've written about endometriosis. She is going to be doing a study on looking at the role of the pelvic microbiome and potentially gram-negative bacteria in the pelvis as a major driving factor of endometriosis, both in terms of finding a biomarker or potential treatments. She told me off the record, you know, endometriosis behaves like a microbial disease, which is pretty fascinating. So we treat it as a, well, mainstream medicine treats it as a hormonal condition. Mm. It's not, it's actually an inflammatory, potentially, you know, potentially microbe driven or at least influenced immune disease. And it's affected by hormones. So we have this blunt instrument where we shut down hormones to try to control the disease. It doesn't actually even work that well for most women, if hormonal birth control, but it can sometimes suppress symptoms, but it doesn't treat the disease. Yeah. And I mean, that that makes sense, you know, with a, you know, to, to what comes out of that will be super interesting, but yeah. you know, I find it so fascinating. I, I and probably characterizes a metabolic kind of guy, right? When right. you study yeah. carb tolerance and you study ketogenic diets and things yes. like that, you're, you're based around metabolism. Yes. Um, and you go to those types of conferences and everyone's talking about basically metabolic state. It's all about cardiometabolic state. That's the right. important stuff. Yes. Then you go to a microbiome conference yeah. and everyone's talking about the gut bacteria and that's all that's important. Right. <laughs> and I think most of us as, you know, naturopathic trained scientists would sit back and say, well, it's the whole lot, really. There's often more than one factor going on. Yeah. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Hey, and so you and I have had a, a little discussion online about the, the role of starch. And I think that would be obviously super interesting for our, our listeners. So what what's your opinion first up on keto for women in, in general? Well, so I'm not an expert on ketogenic diets. I don't prescribe it for my own patient population, but I'm not against it. So just in a broader sense, I certainly acknowledge as a clinician, you know, I acknowledge that ketogenic diets can be therapeutic for obviously certain neurological conditions. I believe that, yeah, I mean, I, I don't doubt for a second that in cases of more severe insulin resistance, that at least a temporary ketogenic diet would be therapeutic for potentially reversing that. Um, all often with my very insulin resistant patients, I will take them low-ish carb, maybe not all the way to ketogenic, but I definitely put the emphasis on low carb. So just to set the stage, I'm on board <laughs> with a low carb. In fact, you know, I've been in practicing 20, 25 years. I was taking people off bread and sugar and kind of low carb leaning back in the nineties. And yeah. I was never ever like for a second on board with low fat. So for me, there's a long, I have a long history of being of recognizing that too much carbohydrate in the wrong person is metabolically damaging. So from that perspective, we're on the same page. I suspect, actually, I suspect we're on the same page for almost all of this. I think what's different is that my observation, which seems to be confirmed by a number of other clinicians. So I'm, you know, I'm putting an invitation out there for people to observe this is that in young women, I'll say young, I'll say by young, I mean, you know, of reproductive age. So mm -hmm. let's say younger than 40. I mean, we're, I'm older than, older than 40 technically is we're still reproductive age, but this different things start to happen in our forties. I think you mentioned perimenopause, insulin resistance becomes more of a problem. So um, let's talk about younger women. 
um, if they, especially if they do not have insulin resistance, they are in a different metabolic situation and they are potentially can lose their period from going too low carb. By lose their period, I mean lose their ovulation. So the first step as a, any clinicians out there, you know, um, personal trainers, or is to understand, to know how to ask about ovulation. So first of all, to know that a pill bleed is not a period. So if, you're, if your client or patient is on hormonal birth control, straight away, that's, you, there's no conversation to be had about ovulation. You're never, you don't know. They're not there castrated anyway. So yeah. you're, not, you're not getting that piece of information from them. So are they having natural cycles? Is their natural cycle coming within, let's say, every 35 days? And is it an ovulatory cycle? And by that, you, they, you, they can track temperatures. They can look for fertile mucus. They can, women can know that they're ovulating. And my view is if a woman is managing to ovulate regularly, she's doing pretty good with her diet. What happens with um, restricted diets, whether it's too low carb or just too low calorie or too low fat or restrict, there's lots of ways to lose ovulation, doesn't happen straight away. There's usually three to six, I'd say four months, three to four months, little honeymoon period when the periods are still going, that's fine. After the four to five to six month mark, ovulation stops, can stop. And yeah. is it true? I mean, I'm, I'm just curious, Cliff, are you not seeing that with your young women patients? I mean, are you? I'm not. No. Um. And I, I think I'm not saying that it doesn't occur because yeah. I think you know my, my approach. You know, I've even you know created this term back in the late '90s, carb appropriate, because yes. I didn't agree that there was one size fits all. Exactly. And even keto, people get keto wrong because you know a lot of what we see is still couched in the old classic four or five to one protocols that were given to kids with epilepsy back in right. the mid 20th century. Right. And for, for most people, that type of keto diet, even if it's calorie sufficient, I think is is not going to be an exemplary diet because it cuts out so much micronutrient content typically through not having vegetables. Um, you know, it doesn't necessarily, maybe it does, but it probably doesn't support the microbiome as well as, as a well, you know, well-balanced keto diet. And typically they are, very low in protein and even people who are now doing better keto diets i think are often still drastically underdoing the protein because they're so scared of gluconeogenesis yeah um so i think that there there's probably a big middle ground there where people are getting really and i don't want to be the guy who's saying oh well everyone who's experiencing these things is getting you know on a shitty keto diet because that might not be true but i think some of them at least are and i think there's also a a potential challenge as well, where some people on a keto diet end up over, uh, sorry, under eating without realizing it. Now that in itself is potentially problematic because, you know, we would know ju not just with women, but I, I spoke about this with Dr. Dan Plews, one of my good buddies, who's a researcher up at AUT as well. And even a very small reduction in calories will basically affect hormonal balance in anyone, man or woman, you know, and it only needs to be about three to 400 calories per day over a long enough period. And so that's why I, I have been quite vocal about the idea that in a lot of cases, it's a reduction in fuel availability, not necessarily the carb content. And the reason why I've, why I've stated that so vocally um, in a lot of different forums is because I know of women who have had fantastic results from being lower carb and they've been scared into having arbitrarily high amounts of carb because 
apparently it's going to help their hormonal function. And some of the numbers that have been thrown around, I remember when one of my students came in and said, oh, someone's told me I need to eat a minimum of 250 grams of carbs per day in order to preserve hormonal function. I said, that, that's crazy. <laughs> like that, I, that makes I, no sense. I agree that that's an arbitrary amount. I, actually, I think you've just made a couple of good points. So first of all, I think I do think protein is important. We're definitely on the same page there. And as just from my biology background, makes sense. Protein is the key nutrient, the key appetite. So that is important to make sure that's in place. And also a lower carb diet, higher protein diet is just a natural appetite suppressant. So potentially, yes, women do run into the risk of um, unintentionally under eating, which is something I see a lot for lots of reasons. Actually, digestive problems are another reason that women yeah. unintentionally under eat. So there needs to be an emphasis on finding a way for them to fuel or eat as much as they need. And also there clearly is individuality. So I would never make a blanket statement about what every woman needs. Um, I do routinely test for insulin resistance. So, and keeping in mind, insulin resistance is a reversible state. So even if someone is insulin resistant at some point, they reverse out of that, they need to then exactly. change their diet. So if someone's insulin resistant, then potentially they're going to benefit from. How do you test for that? How do you test for insulin yeah. resistance? Well, the test I use, I'm curious to get your feedback about it. I use the glucose tolerance test with insulin. So it's the dynamic insulin. Is a, you, you take a fasting glucose plus insulin, then take the, the glucose drink, then test it at one and two hours. And then I look at the kind of area under the curve of insulin. Cool. So you're almost, almost a modified sort of craft protocol. Yeah, I'm not familiar with that term actually, but is the craft protocol? Yeah. I was a, yeah, Dr. Kraft, he did a lot of uh, really interesting research, and it's recently been reanalyzed re by one of my colleagues, uh, Catherine Crofts, we've just co-authored a paper. Okay. And um, he, he basically took that, but I think he had a four-hour. Right. Um, so it was an OGTT and then um, a four-hour, and he looked at different response curves, basically, and he found a number of different subsets, which was super interesting. And that's helped pave the way now for some of this uh, emerging stuff around not just pre-diabetes, but what we're calling pre-pre-diabetes. I mean, this idea of pre-pre-pre-diabetes, right. which is a whole sort of precursory stuff. And it's pretty fascinating. Yeah, it makes sense. So, right. So he's talking about the shape, the area under the curve of insulin itself over the three or four hours. Yes. Is that, yeah, that's yeah, that's similar to what I've been using. Yeah. So, but so we're not guessing, right? I don't want to just have to say, well, I think you're insulin resistant, but you know, I'm not sure. So it gives us some kind of baseline. And then, you know, I watch, okay, here's the other thing I do. So for women in particular, I measure and watch the hormone LH. Mm -hmm. so this is something your clinician as it needs to be kind of on around day two or three of the cycle. Cause it naturally LH naturally spikes in the middle of the cycle. So you don't want to accidentally measure it then and get confused, but at its baseline, as a, as a very general overgeneralization, but I'll just say um, oversimplification, LH is low, too low when there's under eating or potentially under eating carbs. I mean, and in my interpretation, and it's too high in the insulin resistant, potentially kind of over carb state. So it's, this is to do with what's called LH pulsatility. Yeah. Yeah from the pituitary related to the hypothalamus signaling. And it's hugely important for ovulation. Basically this is women's uh, ovulation and women's hormones. It all comes down to that. It's all about energy. A lot of it's about energy and other signals 
in the hypothalamus and then being expressed as LH pulsatility. LH pulsatility is too high in PCOS, for example, that's the polycystic ovarian syndrome, insulin resistant picture, too low in under eating. Hmm. And now in terms of why, you know, if we could determine that for some women, too low, not enough, inadequate glucose starch, inadequate starch, some, you know, slows down the LH pulsatility. If that's happening, you know, I think it's a direct, that direct signal of fed versus unfed to the hypothalamus. You know, I you see all kinds of different theories. It's always because of stress hormones. It's because of thyroid. It's because of all these, you know, nebulous networks of effects. I actually think there's a pretty direct effect of food on hypothalamus, on pituitary, on LH signaling for women. And I think that needs to be researched. I mean, of course it needs to be researched. I don't, you know, I don't want my just observation of this to be, obviously it can't be the final word. Like I would really love for someone to, on some kind of trial, you know, observe this in women who are not insulin resistant going into it. So that would be the caveat. Um, we, we could throw, throw around some ideas. I'm sure yeah. that's something we could look <laughs> yeah, at. It. I mean, that would be fascinating. And I think you've hit the nail on the head. Something that is, I think, missing from a lot of the conversation. And again, I'm stepping back and looking at this in a more general sense. Yeah. But I think total fuel availability is is such a critical component of, of health overall, and it is often missed. And it's missed because I think people are have moved away a lot from calories in, calories out, which is probably a good thing in some respects. Yeah. But they then forget about the role of fuel in the body, total fuel availability, and how that fuel is not just ingested but created within the body how we compensate how that basically affects everything and i think there's a lot going on there that people aren't necessarily recognizing you know an example of that is um you know i'm relatively well known in the ghetto community and i'm surprised by the way that people chase ketones right you know you need to be on a stricter and stricter and stricter keto diet because you want your ketones to be higher and higher and higher right. and what i often um, say to people in workshops and, and lectures and things is would you do the same for glucose right right you wouldn't crazy you know there's no way you'd be chasing like 12 millimoles of glucose so why are people chasing eight right. millimoles of ketones right this idea that more is better so i mean the other way to think about energy is a signal as well as just a fuel, right? It's a Absolutely. signal to the hypothalamus. Yeah. And so the hypothalamus has glucose sensing neurons, which I just was reading last night, actually, also respond to ketones. So it gets even more complicated. But clearly, in, in a very evolutionary sense, the hypothalamus is weighed. It needs to know if there is enough food to make a baby. And it needs to know that. It's a life or death decision. It can't afford to have a pregnancy that will fail because, well, I mean, pregnancies can fail, but that's very stressful for the body, fail because of starvation. So it needs to make that decision. And depending on, it makes sense to me that depending on the ancestry of the woman, that hypothalamus and those glucose sensing neurons, you know, might be more calibrated to potentially more, more glucose, more insulin signaling coming in compared to other populations. So yeah. I mean, that just makes sense because some people didn't have much carbohydrate, but some people did for tens of thousands of years and that, yeah. you know, they're calibrated differently. Yeah, I'd, I'd absolutely agree. And I think that's also an interesting point as to why we can't necessarily look at the, um, you know, the hypothalamic responses of, of laboratory animals 
because they're they're really poor low carb responders. Uh, you know, uh, uh, mice are terrible for keto studies. Yeah, you know, we see all these they, silly studies come out saying yeah. this and that, and it, they're, they're just terrible keto subjects because they they don't go into ketosis very easily. I mean, it's very difficult to get a mouse into keto, just as it is most lab animals that we work with. Whereas humans have a, a very good ability to do that. Um, but I completely agree with you that some people just don't do that well on keto. And I think if someone does thrive on keto, I would suggest that there's not going to be any problem with their hormonal balance if they're eating enough calories and they're in ketosis. However, um, you know, I think one, one thing that I think is clear is when there are people who are staunch zealots on either end and they're not prepared to look at the option as a practitioner that a change towards let's say higher carb could be beneficial for that person they're really not doing the best job and there's no way like in practice there's no way that i would do that if someone's not responding well to keto not that i'd have everyone on keto anyway but if they weren't responding well to it of course i would try them on higher carbs yeah just to, just to clarify that there's not there's sometimes a bit of a disconnect between how a woman feels and how her ovulation signaling is going so sure. I, I have certainly seen with my patients where they may actually be doing okay, like feeling okay in terms of energy. They might not be. I mean, they might be losing hair and insult, having not sleeping and stuff like that. But It's not so, so good. Yeah, if it's possible, <laughs> they, they are still functioning, but their, their, their ovulations have shut down. And that could be, I mean, they could have been descent, you know, ancestors of population who they could keep going, you know, migrating over a mountain range or something in ketosis because they're, you know, they're mm -hmm. people, but that is not a time to make a baby. And, you know, I guess then the question is, well, if our ancestors could, you know, lose their periods all the time because of starvation, then maybe we should too. You know, I think that's not, not acceptable. I mean, the, re the research is now that women, we do benefit from our own ovulations, you know, making, making the hormones that you can only make with ovulation. So yeah. we're not trying to mimic the state of our half-starved ancestors either. That's not necessarily <laughs> no. for women. It's more that we can do things, not that we should necessarily do them. I think you make a good point there because I've been fairly vocal, you know, within the keto community at saying that there are no populations on the planet, none, that are habitually ketogenic. No. That's a fact, yeah. right? There are most populations at times would have been in ketosis. You know, be, yeah. because it's just a normal, and I don't even like the idea that it's sort of a st starvation type um, adaptation. It's more so that it's just it's just an adaptation that we have, and I think it's very beneficial at times. But you you made a good point earlier on, something that I've actually discussed a lot with uh, my colleague Eric Helms, who I think is just one of the best researchers on the planet, and we've we've posited the idea that a lot of people who really benefit from a very low carb diet for the reasons that you suggested, like they're insulin resistant, you know, hyper, hyperlipidemic, all that kind of stuff. It's not like that's a fixed state. So they will improve their insulin sensitivity. They will become metabolically more functional, yep. at which point we would have to say that if they came to us as a snapshot at that time, yep. we wouldn't necessarily suggest a very low-carb ketogenic diet. Yeah, exactly. So, so there can be fluidity there. Yeah, it's, it's no doubt it's therapeutic in certain situations. I think everyone has to acknowledge that and yeah and some people can use it strategically you know sometimes to boost perform or you know whatever they're doing with it i'm not opposed to that but i guess for women i'm, I'm very concerned if they 
lose the periods. The other thing I'll share with you, just because my my patient population is very mainstream. I mean, I don't my most of my patients aren't athletes or high performance kind of people. They are they are normal people struggling. They're trying to you know ingest this information, often very different ideas that are out there. And I, for what it's worth. A lot of the people I talk to are very confused about carbohydrates and I'll have mm. patients who are working, they will strictly avoid potatoes and rice, but that, but then binge on dates and agave syrup and desserts <laughs> later. And this, yeah. this is happening. Like it's, you know, it's yeah. funny, but it's also really sad. So I'm in the camp where I actually think that high dose, fruct high dose fructose is in its own category of being metabolically damaging. And, and from the perspective, I don't know if you saw this new research, but where this basically this research paper where it was on an animal study, but they concluded that it was to do with the microbiome that they said normally, so in the normal state, the small intestines is supposed to metabolize all the fructose, all of it that comes in and it converts it to glucose or organic acids. It sort of deals with it. But if you overload that mechanism in the small intestine, then fructose spills into both the microbiome where it was never supposed to go and the liver where these, this scientist is arguing it was never supposed to go. He said that the small intestine shields the liver from the toxic effects of fructose, which was really interesting. And he was then talking about how, you know, when fructose, high dose fructose hits the liver, that's when bad things happen, right? Like oxidative stress, mitochondrial yeah. damage, things that induce insulin resistance. So that from, and from a clinician, like from a clinician point of view, that really makes sense. Like I get the best results when my patients will seriously stop the soft drinks, the fruit yeah. juice, the, I mean, I'm dealing with people who they had insulin resistance, but they're guzzling boost juice and things like that. Like, so yeah. my approach to low carb is, can you first please stop all the sugar? If you need to eat a little bit of potato with dinner to feel satisfied and you know not crash, then that's okay. But we can deal with that later. But let's get there first. So absolutely. Yeah. I don't know if you've um, seen or or read uh, one of my books, The Carbohydrate Appropriate Diet, but basically that encapsulates my philosophy of nutrition, which is you don't look at anything else until you've started with a diet that is based around natural, unprocessed food. Yeah. And for let's say eighty percent of people, that's enough. Like if you yeah. if you're looking at your plate and it's eighty percent natural unprocessed food, you're, you're probably going to be okay. Yeah. Um, particularly over the long term, and then we start to look at the nuances within that twenty percent, basically, and that's where we start to see well, maybe this person's better off on a keto diet. Maybe this person's better off on modified low carb. Maybe this person's yeah. better off, you know, one of the outliers who's really great on a very high carb diet. I mean, it happens. It happens, and also people, the true sugar consumers are not they say it, but they lie about it i mean that sounds mean they they don't they don't they're addicted right they don't want to talk about it they don't necessarily tell you in the first appointment that they're binging on half a you know half a bag of chocolate Abs bars. like that, that's, that's not going to come out in the conversation so and we we all do that with our vices you know how, how many games of cards did you play last night oh a couple yeah. <laughs> what so, you said you have last night a couple yeah. Exactly. So I look at their ALT. I look at triglycerides. I'm looking at, you know, the insulin, either fasting yeah. insulin or the whole kind of insulin, dynamic insulin testing that I talked about. And I can see the pictures. Like I know this person is having sugar. Yeah. It's right there in black and white. And so then it's more of a conversation of over a few appointments. It's like, you know, you're not going to shock me. You can tell me you're not a bad person because you're eating sugar. Like, you know, it's I've seen it before. <laughs> Believe me. Yeah. I think trigs are 
still the triglycerides are still underappreciated as one of the the absolute if i had to pick out of a blood panel yeah. if i could only pick one thing it would be triglycerides every day yeah. because that is the most indicative proxy for cardiometabolic risk for all-cause mortality risk for insulin resistance i mean we can use it as a yeah. pretty good mark for insulin resistance and we've got a paper coming out uh in about a month which has a, a pretty strong presents a pretty strong hypothesis that triglycerides can basically predict what type of diet you should be on. Yeah. Well, so what we found, which was super interesting was that those with really good or the lower, the lowest triglyceride yeah. people actually did better on a higher carb diet. Interesting. Not just in terms of like, not, you know, changing their risk or whatever. They, they had improvements only when they were on the slightly higher carb. Yep. They were all low carb interventions, but those who had the worst triglycerides at baseline yep. basically needed to be on the very low carb yep. diet. So we're going to have to do some more study to, to sort of add a bit more data to that. But at least we've got this indicative stuff, which I've you know thought for quite a long time that trigs can really predict what type of diet someone should be on. I like it. I mean, I'll just say that aligns with what I see. I mean, what I've been doing for years with yeah, simple blood test too, because everybody's got a, tri a triglyceride test, right? So it's right there. You can look at it. It's straight away. I'm thinking, yeah, okay, we're dealing with. And, and that's health. that's critical because it's something that everyone can get done. Yep. It's funded. It's subsidized. And, you know, I teach that to my students all the time is before you go and look at all the very expensive esoteric testing, yeah. learn how to read a blood panel well, because that's going to give you the best information probably because it's validated it's credible yeah. and it's not going to cause further burden on the, the person's wallet okay. you know one thing that i've become so concerned with in the last couple of years and that i'm really trying to work with is that so many of our clients like you and i so many yeah. of our clients would be the, the worried well yeah. who have money yeah. and there's a lot of people out there who aren't getting the support they need because they just simply can't afford it yeah exactly yep um, so both things you said, I mean, I think the worried, well, I'm with you. I don't like to, them to be spending a lot of money on tests that they don't need. Microbiome testing, that doesn't mean anything, you know, extra functional <laughs> testing. But as you say, you can get some really good information just from some basic blood tests. And yeah, I'm I'm for the people, like that democratic, you know, I think these, well, that's a lot of my work, a lot of my communication, a lot of my writing is for yeah, for everyone that these, you know, these are just working with their own doctor with some basic testing with some sometimes basic supplements, they can do a lot. And it's yeah. within reach. I agree. Yeah. So what what are some of the, the sort of go to books or resources in the health space that um, are your go to's? Yeah, my go to's to read. That's a very, <laughs> I mean, I mostly <laughs> just read kind of papers actually scientific papers you're like me boring, yeah. boring <laughs> i mean i've got just various uh, ways of you know sorting them on my computer and folders of papers so in terms of other books that's a very good question i haven't read a health book in a while um but yeah i just follow you know twi uh, twitter i guess is where i get a lot of my health information as well and follow articles and papers that people link to like that article about fructose the recent one about the link of the microbiome and bacteria for endometriosis you know that's not in any kind of book at this stage so and so you, you repost a lot of that stuff right so yeah, people should follow you on twitter and yeah. actually those things are in my book <laughs> i know you weren't asking for my book but i mean there's that as well no we'll definitely link to your yeah. book uh in the show notes and yeah. i highly recommend that people read that and i am going to read yours too i'm intrigued now after such a great conversation today. <laughs> <laughs>
Oh, I think it's in, when people read my book, they realize that I, I really hate being characterized as a keto guy because although I was one of the first, I think, practitioners in Australasia to really start delving into keto, it, it wasn't because I thought it was for everybody. It's because I thought it was so valuable for some people. And the, for the rest, there's this spectrum there. And as you know, you and I have discussed, it's not the most important thing. The most important thing is that people are eating real food and they're eating enough protein and they're eating enough vegetables and things like that. I mean, and that's where conceptually, I think people can understand that too. Yep. You sit down and talk with people and say, hey, you kind of know what real food is, right? Yeah. Well, don't stress about the rest just yet. Just get back in touch with eating food. <laughs> people are very confused. They are, which is unfortunate but yeah i think if enough of us stick with some clear simple information hopefully that'll because what happens if when they're confused they just give up right they're like i tried this i tried keto and then it whatever whatever reason it failed and so then they're like nothing will work so i'm just so then they're like nothing will work so i'm gonna eat all this crap and that's exactly how gonna, that's how i'm gonna exist it's like whoa that's yeah <laughs> and and that's one of the reasons why i'm not opposed to you know, when done well, I'm not opposed to a vegan diet. I'm not opposed to a keto diet. I'm not opposed to a very high carb whole foods diet. Whatever it happens to be, if it works for that person, I'm, I'm, oppo I'm opposed to a keto. Uh, I'm opposed to a vegan diet. Sorry. <laughs> I, I probably I'm probably on the same page as you. Yeah. So I, I'm not opposed to a vegan diet if the person is supplementing with B12, and if it is, you know, if they're really thriving on it. Um, but I think that it's, it's, it's very problematic. And I think it's very interesting that, um, you know, we, we recently had our government mandated review of diet types. And of course it was the same old thing. Um, the DASH diet comes out on top, followed by the Mediterranean diet, low carb, you shouldn't do. But interestingly, there was no, ver no comment on a vegan diet yeah. and the, the criticisms of, I mean, leave aside low carb, but the criticism of paleo I thought was really interesting because they basically said, don't do paleo. It restricts certain food groups, therefore it's bad. And I wrote to the authors, I wrote, well, on yeah. sort of on Twitter, as yeah. you do. Yeah. And said, hold on, how can you say that one diet's bad because it restricts food groups and you're not making comment about a vegan diet? That makes no sense to me. Whether or not it's good or bad, you can't use that as a metric. Yeah, the vegan, I'll just say as a biologist, this is my, through the bio, the lens of a biologist, a vegan diet is not a diet for humans. I mean, with my own patients, my view is, you know, you could, they could do it. You know, I try to be supportive and not, not, you know, mean about it. But I say, but in my view, we're going to have to reduce our expectations of your health. Like there's only so, you can only be so healthy on a vegan diet. There's a, there's a ceiling on that. It's not just B12, it's zinc, it's taurine, it's choline, it's iodine, it's vitamin A, it's, it's, yeah. yeah. I don't know, I don't know how many vegan listeners you have, but I've just offended them all. But oh, no. um, I've probably got quite a few and I offend okay. them as well because I, I make yeah. the same arguments, you know, it, it, even your, um, you know, your omega-3 metabolites, yeah. DHA, EPA, DPA. I mean, some people have, an extraordinary challenge converting alpha linolenic acid to those metabolites. And so it, it's well known that a lot of vegans are functionally deficient in essential fatty acids. Yep. Yep. And they can't make vitamin A from beta carotene. They Exactly. I mean, there's a 13, 13 fold difference in conversion rates between individuals. Exactly. And they, <laughs> Crazy. 
they need taurine for the brain, for the nervous system, for, you know. Well, that's good. We've, we've, I'm glad we've offended the vegans. I know. Well, we've done that tick. <laughs> no, I feel bad, but I, I don't know what else to do. I mean, I for, for years I was trying to sort of say, well, it's okay if it's done properly. And now I'm just like, I have to be honest. I sort of feel like, I don't know, the analogy I always use is people can say, you know, well, I'm going to sleep less for ethical reasons or whatever their reason is. Like my my philosophy is I'm going to sleep less or I'm going to breathe less oxygen or this is, you know, what I want to do and don't criticize me for it. It's like, well, you can do that. You know, I guess I can't stop you, but there's a biological reality of what's going to happen to your body when you do that. Exactly. I, I say exactly the same thing. I say if you want to be vegan for ethical or other reasons, then that's I, I may dispute those reasons as well, but I, I'm completely supportive of you for that. But there's no good reason to be vegetarian or vegan for health. No. no. I agree. In fact, I think it makes it more difficult because you've just got to have so many other I mean, the, the reality is you can have a, a good omnivorous diet, which is what we've evolved to eat, without supplementation, although I'm a fan of supplementation. But you can't say the same for a vegan diet. You absolutely need to supplement. It's it's absolutely essential. Yeah, we'll move on now because now that we've upset all, I feel bad. But I just, I yeah, I need it's to, fine. It's fine yeah. because it creates a good debate and people yeah. understand that we're pragmatic. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I like to say that it's it's from my biologist perspective. I mean, that's how I'm yeah. seeing it. Not even as, and it's not a it's not a philosophy, right? It's a just a biological reality. So, and I'm the co-founder of a plant-based nutrition company. <laughs> oh, right. Okay. <laughs> but I'm not vegan. And, right. you know, very few people at the company are either. Right. Um, okay. But, yeah, we just choose to make them vegan so that we've got a bigger market. I should probably shouldn't say that either. Okay. Um, anyway, <laughs> I'd love to know just some of your, you know, in the time that we have left, some of your keys to staying balanced. Like I, I, I understand that your probably pretty busy like a lot of the the other influential people that i know in this industry how do you manage to stay balanced and sort of you know walk the talk that you're putting out there yeah I've, i'm constantly having to make new boundaries around social media that's been one of my challenges i've been doing some of my own social media until recently now i've got someone to help me to go in and look at notifications and things i find that personally very stressful i don't know if everyone is as stressed out by social media as me but it's it's something it's feeding into our need as humans to be constantly validated so it's this yeah. kind of dopamine hit plus for me this constant fear of you know is someone saying something bad about me on twitter it's like i just i need it i need to disassociate from that somehow it's so. it's destructive yeah and i don't i didn't want to butt in but i yeah one of my um, very close friends emailed me yesterday and um, is, is having some some challenges. And I'm not sure if you know, but I uh, have bipolar disorder. So a lot of people ask my sort of um, advice on various things when they're struggling. Yeah. And one of the pieces of advice, uh, just uh, I gave the, the person a couple of different pieces of advice, but one of them was to delete Facebook off your phone. Yeah. And that's one thing that... I have found to be so critically freeing in the last little while because it's too easy just to flick in and get wound up with meaningless debates and things like that. And I, and I, I now I, I time block, right? So I have very clear times for doing things like my communications. I do twice a day at about 11 or four and that includes everything. 
yeah. from email through to jumping on Twitter and having a quick debate with you through to um, jumping yeah. on Facebook and whatever. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and Sorry, I'm going to cough here. That makes yeah. things so much more succinct, but it also cuts out the crap because you don't want to be overly engaged in things that's not worth your time. And what I've found is that in not having that device to go back to and just have it as a proxy for doing something, like a distraction, I've started, I mean, I've read 54 novels this year yeah. so far. I've got back into playing music. I'm training more, yeah. which I'd let slide the last couple of years. And just all these things, I've got a list on my wall in front of me in my office of the things that I love to do. And I wasn't doing them because I was just scrolling social media. <laughs> you know, now I'm back a, doing the things I love. It's a big deal. Like, wait, it sounds funny and it sounds kind of trivial, but it's a big deal. It's been affecting all of our brains. Like, I actually feel it's been changing my brain, a shorter attention span. I mean, the example is novels. You mentioned about novels. I've always been an avid reader love big thick juicy novels all my life and the last three or four years I've read a few but not as many as usual and it's like yeah it's because I'm so distracted it's not even just it's not even physically being distracted it's my attention span is fragmented and yeah. I'm really pissed off about that actually I want I want it back I want my attention span back so I'm the same I've, I don't have anything on my phone now and I try to just uh, give myself permission to sit down and read a novel for an hour and stay focused and not think, yeah, I'm going to go just check my email now halfway through this chapter. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. One thing that we briefly spoke about before we jumped online here was, um, you know, so I think some of the negativity that is, it's, it's in the world full stop, but in our industry as well, really comes through in the worst way in social media. And I've been really happy to step back from that and realize that I don't need to engage. There's no compulsion to have to prove someone wrong if they say something that's contrary to what I believe, because it really is, in many respects, a pretty wasted exercise. Yeah, there are a lot of people out there and they don't all, you know, they're never going to agree. So I agree. Yeah. yeah. So have you got anything big planned in the next little while, Lara? Well, any new books or anything well, coming out? No, well, I'm so I'm I'm so my book is self-published, um, and I've in part it's actually with Macmillan in Australia, New Zealand, which is great, but in the rest of the world it's self-published, and I've decided to pay for, which is not cheap, a Spanish translation of my book. Ah, and see. So I'm interacting with a lot of Latina because I speak a bit of Spanish myself. So I'm when I am on social media, I'm trying to speak some Spanish, interact with some of the. Uh, South American accounts, and I may once the book is out, I may actually travel to Mexico City and South America next year and try a little speaking engagement in Spanish. But I think I need to wow. more pronunciation. <laughs> but yeah, that's my next project. Because it's so cool. This, this I, I, is, yeah, this is the for the people thing we were talking about, right? Like, there's a lot yeah. of Spanish-speaking women out there need help. Yeah. I was. Some of my friends in uh, South America have have mentioned the same thing to me. Not not in the women's health market, yeah. but just in terms of general yeah. health and nutrition education. Because most of it is published published in English. Yeah. Probably the next biggest is German, and yeah. there's very little published in Spanish. Although there is more now. Um, not as much filters through to the mainstream, and so I think it's it's a really important thing. And I've actually toyed with that idea before as well. I, I lived in. Uh, Buenos Aires for just a little while yep. and I would love to go back but I haven't 
had the courage yet to, to go back and try and do a speaking engagement. Yeah. I, I think I really need to practice. Yeah, well, I need to practice too. And the other challenge for a Spanish book for the Latino market is that apparently they don't order from Amazon. They don't order, you know, I don't know how I'm going to get the books to them. This is part of the problem. I'm probably going to have to bite the bullet and actually pay for some runs of print, like print the book in Mexico, mm. you know, print the book in Argentina. So at this stage, well, it's, a, it's a labor of love. I don't know if I'm going to make any money whatsoever from the Spanish book, but we'll see. I, I may, um, I, I'll, 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 offline, I'll um, connect and, and maybe connect you with someone I know who's done that. Um, my good friend, Dr. Ian Brooks, okay. was New Zealand's biggest selling business author for a long time. He's actually a Canadian guy as well. Okay. Um, and he became, I think, was very well read in South America, both throughout okay. South America and also in Brazil. So uh, I don't know exactly how did it because he was also a self-published author, but he was one of those yeah. real success stories in self-publishing back in the yeah. sort of 80s. Yeah, great. Yeah. Good. Awesome, Lara. Yes. So you're one of our featured speakers at HPN yes. this year, along with we have a stacked lineup. It's yourself, obviously, and I'm super looking forward to listening to you, but also Julia Rutledge, the mental yeah. health expert, Professor Mike Hutchison, Dr. Eric Helms, Dr. Mickey Willardin, Kirsten Bainon, myself. It's going to be a pretty awesome day. Yeah, fantastic. And I am so stoked that you're going to be there. I think the work you're doing is amazing. And so thank you so much for being on today. Um, I'll have the show notes up and we'll have the podcast out probably in the next week. And uh, we'll make sure to link to your book in there. And um, like I say, we, we will just uh, keep following you and all the amazing work you're doing in women's health. Great. I really enjoyed our conversation. I will definitely, yes, share the podcast so more people can listen in. And I'll see you next month. Very soon. Yeah, six weeks away. Like awesome, that. Lara. Thanks so All much. Right. Yeah, take care. You yeah. too. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Carb Appropriate Podcast. If you'd like to know more about what I do, go to cliffharvey.com. And remember, patrons get exclusive access to the live stream podcast. To sign up, go to patreon.com forward slash cliffharvey.